Welcome to the New Legal Realism Podcast. The New Legal Realism Project promotes rigorous and genuinely interdisciplinary scholarship on law in action. Today's podcast is an interview with John Bliss, whose scholarship examines the relationship between lawyers' professional identities and their public interest values. He is an assistant professor at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law, where he teaches primarily in the areas of legal profession, property, and sociolegal studies. Before joining the Denver Law faculty, he completed his JD and PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, and spent two years as a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard Law School Center on the Legal Profession. He belongs to several academic associations relating to the interdisciplinary study of law and the legal profession, including serving on the board of New Legal Realism and serving as co-director of the Legal Education Collaborative Research Network with the Law and Society Association. Would you mind describing your research for our listeners? First, thanks so much for hosting this podcast and having these conversations about new legal realism. Like many other new legal realists, I am most generally interested in understanding how law relates to society and vice versa. What is this mutually constitutive relationship between law and society? In other words, we're trying to contextualize law with empirical methods, with social scientific theory, with interdisciplinary perspectives. We're trying to understand the law in action through legal institutions and legal actors. And for me, this means a focus on empirically studying lawyers and law students. So about half of my work starts in law school, where I'm looking at the ideals and aspirations and values that students bring into law school and then how they're socialized into the professional role. The other half of my work is looking at lawyers within social movements, where I'm asking some very similar questions, but a bit later in the timeline of a lawyer's career. I started with the legal education research, which really grew out of my own experience as an idealistic law student, taking clinics in workers' rights and asylum and related seminars and being around a lot of like-minded students, and then seeing the dilemma that students face if they've been aspiring to some nonprofit or government public interest career, but have opportunities to start their career in a large law firm. I was at Berkeley Law where students have pretty great access to lucrative and prestigious law firm positions. The firms come right onto campus at the beginning of the second year of law school. This was 15 years ago. I understand now they might come onto campus even a bit earlier. And uh, when I reached this point in law school, rather than going into the law firm or holding out for public interest, I took a third path, a meta path, which is that I started taking social science courses. I took an ethnography course with Cal Morrill in the Jurisprudence and Social Policy Program at Berkeley. And for my course project, I studied this phenomenon of my classmates going through this process of what's been called public interest drift. The drift from initial public interest career aspirations to going to law firms. And I took a deep qualitative look at how these students think about this process, how they think about their uh, lawyer role, their values about themselves more generally. Um, And I then went into the JSP program and continued this project for five years as my dissertation. I even extended it for my postdoc in China, um, doing a a comparative study with the same methods, same research questions. And 
Even now I'm doing extensions of the project in a sense. I'm working with some other NLR scholars on a study of black law students and how they're thinking about the public interest and identities and values in the context of Black Lives Matter. The work I do on lawyers and social movements addresses very similar questions. Again, I'm focused on the lawyers and how they're thinking about the lawyer role and the impacts that, that they can have. For example, I did an archival study for several years of the early NAACP campaign against racially restrictive covenants, where I showed that these lawyers have a heavily contextualized view of their litigation practice. One of the things they did is they collaborated with social scientists to make sure that there would be a robust sociological record they could bring to the courts to show that racial covenants had a systemic impact on real people in the real world. And they did this very effectively. Um, I also look at lawyers within the movement. So Lauren Miller, who ends up being the lead, uh, the leader of the national litigation campaign against racial covenants, and later a very prominent NAACP lawyer, in uh, his early years after law school, spent uh, nearly a, uh, roughly a decade uh, attacking the NAACP as a radical journalist, suggesting that the NAACP was too lawyerly, too focused on rights, not focused enough on transformative change in the economic system. So this is an individual lawyer who ends up playing such a prominent role in the early NAACP, but is very skeptical of the limitations of law and has to reconcile himself to some degree with this background he has as a radical journalist, but later becoming a full-time lawyer and then even a judge, really embracing the legal profession but also experiencing this tension and wanting the legal profession to be able to have a greater impact, if possible, really pushing the bounds of the lawyer role. And I see a similar story in other projects I'm doing. I have a forthcoming book on the founding of the animal rights movement with Justin Marceau and Kristen Stilt. Uh, and I have an ongoing project on these lawyers that are trying to mitigate global catastrophic risk. In any one of these projects, there's a lot of distinctive challenges. For example, if you're trying to mitigate these global catastrophic risks, well, it's hard to think about these risks. They're fairly speculative. They involve a lot of science. They involve foresight about emerging technology. Uh, it can be difficult to embrace the uh, moral concern for future generations that's inherent in a global catastrophic risk. Um, and if you're concerned about future generations, how do you think about your accountability to this affected constituency if you can't even consult with them? The point I want to make is although these are distinctive challenges, there's a lot of theoretical overlap with what you would see in other movements. So animal rights movements also gonna to have to address cognitive biases to caring about animals and accountability issues. How are you accountable to non-human animals if you can't um, converse with them the same way you would with, with a person? But even in movements that involve people, uh, like civil rights movements, there's a long line of literature suggesting that lawyers haven't always heeded the desires of the most affected constituencies, so these accountability, accountability issues are very salient. Even more generally, just to tie this initial comment together, looking at these lawyers and social movements is a way to look at the relationship between law and society, and society is you know, dealing with these issues of civil rights and animal rights and catastrophic risk, and uh, there's developing public opinion and conflicting public opinion. There's developing politics around it. And there's also developing law. And lawyers might be primarily working in the legal domain, but they, their work can't be fully understood unless uh, we take an empirical look at the way 
that they are crossing these bounds, the way that public opinion and politics matters to their work and the way that their work in turn matters to politics and uh, more general public discourse. Super interesting. Yeah, thanks for that overview. Um, would you mind describing your methodological approach? Yeah, so I do some survey research and I do believe that quantitative research is crucial and important. It often reveals our biases and misunderstandings about the world. Um, but most of my work has been qualitative and that's because I'm ultimately very interested in how lawyers find meaning and how their uh, identities and values play out in these contexts. And often those are the kind of questions that fall below the radar of survey research. For example, my uh, dissertation on public interest drift uh, started with this literature showing through surveys that students at the beginning of law school say they want to be public interest lawyers, but later in law school say that they're not going to be public interest lawyers, that they're going into mm -hmm. private firms. And this led to a common narrative that there's something very uh, sort of pernicious happening in law school that is uh, sort of flattening out these public interest values and creating these hired guns for corporate law firms. To the extent that that was the narrative, um, I think my qualitative research really um, counter countered that narrative, right? I found that most of these students who drifted, who would have checked the box on 1L for public interest and the box for corporate law in 3L, actually held on to their public interest values very strongly. And the story is more of cognitive dissonance and what I call divided selves when they go into their mm -hmm. careers and they feel like they're just sort of playing this role as a corporate lawyer, but they have this really strong public interest identity um, that they're hoping to get back to at some point. And so that kind of level of cultural analysis, I think is more um, available through qualitative methods. Um, how far out are you studying the students? If they're, if they hang on to this public interest identity, do they ever then return to that? So in my dissertation, I studied five years for the first yeah. cohort. So I did get a couple years into the career and they were still dealing with this. Yeah. Uh, but that is my question as well. And it's still, I think, a very uh, unexplored research question to, to, to tie these together. There's, there's a lot of great research about lawyers' careers and how their um, public interest careers were motivated by decisions they made earlier. But this qualitative story, I think, still needs to be told because mm -hmm. as, as you're suggesting, there might be a hypothesis here that eventually the cognitive dissonance kind of resolves and they, you know, they find a way to narrate their th themselves. There's also a lot of movement in careers. So, so a lot of lawyers do come back to public interest. I think in the after the JD study, it's something like 7% uh, of lawyers that start in big law uh, end up in in what we'd classify as a, a nonprofit or government public interest office uh, mm -hmm. by by one of the later waves in the study. Yeah, and I wonder if the ones that are more public interest oriented end up doing more pro bono over the course of their career. That's one of the big implications that I also can't speak to very solidly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it could be that this self division inhibits public interest expression because you're just feeling like this job is terrible and you don't want to be here and you're just waiting to get out. Uh, or it could be that it creates this tension that needs to find some outlet and 
you know, these big firms are doing a lot of pro bono and, and the yeah. have a lot of say over what that pro bono looks like uh, and, and the kind of projects that, that they would pursue. So that would be the hopeful implication. Yeah, yeah. OK, we can move on. Um, what are some of the theoretical debates that your research engages? So a lot of my work focuses on uh, debates about professional identity of lawyers. If lawyers are supposed to be client service, uh, hired guns, zealous advocates for clients, how do how do those obligations fit with their public obligations and their values in terms of wanting to have a larger impact in the world? And in particular, how does this look for cause lawyers who sort of break the mold of the client oriented professional and are really focused on on the cause. Uh, when I get to the lawyers working on social change, there's, uh, you know, I start with those questions about professional identity and then I layer on these big socio-legal debates about efficacy and accountability and, uh, and the culture of social change lawyering. So the old efficacy debate is about whether lawyers are overly concerned with legal solutions, whether they're uh, attracted to courts as flypaper, to quote one of the scholars in this field, um, whether they're drawn to a sort of myth of rights that if you win in the courts, it will have these de facto impacts. And I think most of the literature has now moved to a more nuanced discussion than uh, this debate about whether lawyers in general are good or not. For social change, now we're looking at indirect effects of legal action cultural symbolic effects, internal effects on mobilizing movements, whether you win or not in a in a legal um, case, and the kind of extra legal uh, work that lawyers are engaged in, and the way that non-lawyers are engaged in law. So so that kind of context is important for, for example, my research on these existential advocates, I call them, the, the lawyers uh, worried about existential threats to humanity. Mm -hmm. who are very focused on de facto impact and uh, are eager to bring in these socio-legal perspectives to understand their work in context. How do they really have an effect on this issue? They're not, uh, they're not at all the myth of rights lawyers, if, uh, if that was ever a fair characterization of public interest lawyers. They're, they're very focused on how, how to really have the most impact uh, that they can. On the accountability question, there's this longstanding concern that lawyers haven't always listened to the communities that are most affected by an issue and have tended to pursue their uh, legal theories, even if it's not in the interests of the, the larger cause. And there's some pushback now that maybe this isn't a very fair characterization of lawyers in, um, in the civil rights movement and, and other examples where this, this literature has focused. And for me, uh, I get to really focused on this question because I'm now looking at issues like representing non-human animals who can't really express an opinion on legal strategy or future generations who can't be reached at all. And mm -hmm. I find very thoughtful theories from these advocates about how they can at least approximate accountability and, and representing the, the interests of, of these constituents. And then a lot of my work is trying to add to this efficacy and accountability analysis that we have in the literature, 
a greater focus on the culture and and identities within these movements. So for example, these existential advocates have this culture that's entirely focused on how they can maximize their impact. And to support that goal, they have very consistent cultural norms that try to limit their biases. And this is something I observe in practice that they remind each other to um, use their system to deliberative reasoning to be humble about um, their conclusions about what would be most impactful to resist groupthink. They've really developed a very consistent culture. And I think having that layer of analysis is important for kind of comparing lawyers in, in different movements and uh, getting into these theoretical debates with a bit more empirical perspective. Okay, and do you have any thoughts on how you might best translate your research to policy changes out there in the world? Yeah, so starting early in the timeline with the law students, I uh, have written about how we should reform legal education. And then I also have a 1L public interest program that I do here at Denver Law with my colleague Lexi Freeman, which is directly drawing on findings from my research. So for one thing, we focus on the 1L year because my research showed that students go through 1L uh, even if they have very strong public interest values, they feel a bit disoriented. They also feel just very uninformed about what their career options might be. And then ultimately they feel very risk averse. Uh, so if a corporate law job comes up first, they might not have had uh, a chance to think about the uh, the alternatives. And so we try to provide that in, in the first year. That's very much um, you know within my my uh, bailiwick of, of expertise and influence to, to talk to these 1Ls. On the other side of my research, uh, when I'm working with these advocates, I also try to have some uh, positive contribution. So for example, when I ask for access to conduct ethnography or interviews with the existential advocates, I have, um, the, the deal was that I would provide feedback based on my observations and this literature on law and social change so that they could hopefully be more effective and more ethical. And uh, that was a very attractive deal from, from, from their side in, in, in terms of permitting me to, to conduct the research. And we have had a lot of meetings where I provided feedback. I also, because I'm a participant observer with them, I am a part of the strategic meetings, the discussions on Slack, the shared docs that are going around, uh, and, I, and I'm providing feedback. And even after the study, I've contributed in some of these ways. And in, in a way, this is very consistent with the tradition of ethnographic research that you fully participate in the culture that you're observing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also more personally motivated by the fact that I do think that they're working on something important, that we don't have enough attention to large scale catastrophic risk. And we should probably be uh, aware of this in the wake of a global pandemic and seeing all the effects of climate change and seeing all of this technological advance around, for example, AI and synthetic biology. And, and, and so if my experience with this community gives me some insight, plus my background as a law professor and uh, someone that thinks about law and social change, uh, then I'm happy to be part of those conversations and have that opportunity to uh, to give some input. I'd also say as sort of a side note that that community has this 
framework for focusing on maximizing de facto impact. Every discussion is about this. And that has influenced me. And I do think about myself as a scholar uh, in, a, in a different way because of this accountability that I've internalized to the notion of having an impact and having the most impact. That if I worked on one project and it might have some impact, but if I predict that another project would have a hundred times more positive impact, then I should I should maybe consider that. And, and working mm -hmm. with these advocates has had that kind of influence on my thinking. Um, and so I'm curious, how did you get involved in the NLR movement and how does your research connect to it? So I think my work has always fit squarely in the NLR tradition. I'm bringing social science perspectives into law school because I study law students and because I work in a law school. Um, more specifically, though, I've engaged with the NLR community. I'm on the board. I've written for the blog and I've received mentorship and advice from some of the founding figures like David Wilkins and, and Beth Mertz. Um, and, you know, I think the questions I'm working on have to do with the some of the foundational uh, inquiries of NLR. What do lawyers do? How do they think about their work and their values? And what impacts do they have, which speaks to the relationship between the law and the books and the law and action and the relationship between law and society? The next and last question. Um, how does your research and your appreciation of law and social science inform how you teach your classes? It definitely informs how I teach, and I wish that I could bring it in even more. The students do set a certain limit on how much sociology they're willing to put up with uh, <laughs> in required classes. I teach all required classes. I teach a 1L class, and I teach uh, a course on legal ethics. You know, that said, uh, I do think they appreciate some perspective on, for example, who are the lawyers who brought the case that we're reading today? What are their motivations? Where, how does this kind of fit in their career and their values? We can have some of those discussions. When I teach property, I talk about racial covenant research and that background. Um, but, you know, the students are worried about their grades. They're worried about exams. They're worried about the bar exam. And, and I think there are some limits um, in my legal ethics class, there's certainly more room, although students do have to take this MPRE legal mm -hmm. ethics exam for admission to the bar, and so that's on their minds. But, um, you know, I talk about research about what lawyers do in different sectors, the after the JD findings about lawyers' careers, diversity and inclusion research, we have a whole day on that. And I talk about my own research. So, for example, I have them do this visual identity exercise from my dissertation, and they think about kind of how the lawyer role fits with their other roles in their life, this very kind of Goffman-esque sociological framework for thinking about yourself as uh, something that's constructed of roles and values and identities. And then I can show them research and some uh, sort of cautionary tales from the research about lawyer well-being and how lawyers find uh, ways to express their values in their careers. And, and I think students appreciate those exercises as long as you calibrate um, the amount of time you're spending on doctrinal teaching with this broader context. I'd like to thank Francis Tung and the many researchers collaborating on this new Legal Realism project and for working to make this podcast happen. 
Visit NLR at www.newlegalrealism.org or on the blog at newlegalrealism.wordpress.com where new legal realists post on everything from law to the latest in jazz. You can also email us at newlegalrealism at gmail.com. This is April Faith Slaker with the New Legal Realism Podcast. Thanks for listening.